Good day to everyone. My name is Benjamin Allen, and this is the Apocalypse Theater Podcast. It's been far, far too long since I released an episode, and since this is a podcast about stories, both creepy and interesting, I feel like Halloween is the best time to pull out some of the creepier tales floating around in the darker corners of my brain. Don't worry, November 5th is just six days away, and from there we'll find out what our good friend Jonathan Tabith has been up to. He's got a nice, big brain, and that's the focus of this next story. Enjoy, and have a safe Halloween. Under the Temple of Madness 1. Arthur Cunningham left his developmental biology class at the USC building and exited through the glass doors without talking to anyone as was his regular habit. He didn't like talking to other people, and he didn't like thinking about anything other than his schoolwork because he knew they could tell what he was thinking. He got on the 200 Orange Line bus and then transferred to the 30 Line. From there, he could sleep while waiting for the bus to get to Boyle Heights. He did sleep, even as the homeless guy rapped racist lyrics in the seat behind him. It was easy to tune out the world after what he had experienced, but he couldn't think about that. They knew how to track people whose thought patterns went against the norm. Arthur opened his eyes and looked around the empty bus. The rapper had gotten off several stops earlier. He could have sworn that someone else, other than the driver, was with him, resting in one of the many seats on the higher levels of the bus cabin. Arthur disembarked the bus at his stop and went into a single-bedroom flat he was renting from the convenience store clerk next to the porn store at the corner of 4th and Euclid. He closed the door behind him and flicked on the lights. Two men wearing black coats and slacks immediately wrestled Arthur to the ground. He let himself go lax and kept his hands open as they rifled through his pockets. Arthur had considered buying a gun, but he'd spent all his money renting this apartment under the name of Arthur Cunningham. That was after he'd done his best to disappear. He'd obviously not done well enough and was now wishing that he'd opted for the gun. Nice try, Paul Walker. Or should I say... Began one of the agents as he unfolded Arthur's wallet. He was a bald man with a cloud of white hair hovering around his slightly sunburned cranium. Arthur J. Cunningham... The agent tossed the wallet over his shoulder where it landed face down on the tiled threshold of the dusty apartment flat. The walls of the room hadn't been painted in too long, so the white carried a pea look in the yellow fluorescent light. He's clean, the second agent said, hoisting Paul to his feet. The first agent pulled out a chair at Arthur's cheap Ikea table and shoved Paul into the seat. The two unbuttoned the bottom buttons of their suits and sat in the chairs opposite to him. They both stared at him for a few seconds with their hands clasped in front of them, studying him. The man on the right was older than the man on the left. His scalp was turning a salmon color from being out in the sun for too long. The man on the left was easier to forget, a useful trait in their business. He had short, clean-cut brown hair and dark brown eyes. His face was symmetrically round, whereas the older gentleman seemed to be melting away. I'm Bob and this is Jim, the older man said, thumbing between his partner and himself. It was unlikely that those were their real names. Before we get started, let me just put a little something on the table. Bob fished in his pocket before placing a solid stainless steel ball on the table. This device will tell us if you're lying, Jim said. Don't ask how or why it works, but we want you to understand that it does work. Okay, Paul said. You do understand that it's a felony to evade law enforcement and to assume the identity of somebody who is not yourself, Jim asked. I do understand, Paul said. Good, Jim pursed his lips and nodded. Would you guys like a glass of water or something, Paul asked. I'm fine for now, Bob said. Me too, Jim nodded. Who do you guys work for? I didn't hear any badge numbers or an agency or anything, Paul tried. You know what happened to you warrants us goons who were above the natural order of things, the men from on high, if you know what I mean, Bob said. I think so, Paul said nervously. You're the only one we can find, Paul, Jim said. 
Tell us where the others are so we can wrap this up. You'll never find them, Paul said weakly. He shook his head. They're gone. I I saw them. That's not entirely true. Bob reclined in his chair and put his hands into his suit pockets. Charles Reed made some transactions last week. We sent a few guys after him, but they never came back. Got any answers for why that might be? Paul let his mouth hang open for a few seconds as he let his fingers hover over the tabletop. Everyone from the expedition is dead. He tapped on the table. Charles Reed is dead. He tapped on the table again. And now your men are going to join them in never coming back. Do not misunderstand the actuality of what I just told you. So someone's running around pretending to be Charles Reed? Jim asked. Should we phone his bank identity theft protection department and let them know? No, maybe. It doesn't matter to you other than that Charles is dead and if you send anyone to find him, they will die as well, Paul said before slapping his forehead with both hands. Ah, stop thinking, stop thinking. Jim and Bob looked between one another. Maybe you should get a few things off your chest and tell us what happened, Bob said. I know the families of those archaeologists would definitely like to know what you know about why their father, their uncle, their brothers and sisters, why you came back from an expedition that's clouded with mystery and their family members didn't. Sounds like something I should talk about with a lawyer present, Paul mumbled. You got one? Call him up and get him here post-haste. Jim pressed the table with all five fingers. I I don't, and Paul looked left and right. I'd rather not include anybody else in this. Yeah, well, we came a long way dressed like spooks, and you weren't an easy person to find. Bob leaned forward and rested on his elbows. Why don't you tell us exactly what happened the night of June 8th last year? We're big boys. We can handle whatever crazy story you can throw at us. We need to know what happened to them, Jim said seriously. Paul took a moment to consider this. He mopped his face, wishing he didn't have to piece together the events that took place over a year prior. He'd done a fairly decent job of trying to forget about the gory details that eliminated the lives of 15 students and faculty members of the Boston University archaeology staff. He counted himself as the 15th as his life would never be the same, having saw what he saw and having been the only survivor of something so horrifying. I don't like thinking about those events, Paul answered finally. Who would? Jim waved. Paul gave him a dark look. No, not because it depresses me. I mean, yeah, it depresses me, just not for that reason. Bob took a deep breath and sighed. Do you understand why it's us who are talking to you and not the local or international authorities? Technically, you should be arrested and formally charged, but because we're aware of the sensitivity of the matter, we would like your official statement for our investigation so we can properly put to rest the events that transpired. Contacting the authorities will be our last resort. Okay, okay, it's not because I don't want to talk, it's because... What? What is it? Jim asked. They can tell when you're talking about them. They know. They know everything, Paul replied in a whisper. If they know everything, then what does it matter whether or not you talk about it? Jim scoffed. Bob put a hand on Jim's shoulder. Why don't you walk us through from the beginning, and then we'll work our way into the bigger stuff. Maybe you won't even have to think, it'll just come out. Paul mulled over this before realizing that the game was already over. They were here and they were going to find out everything. He stared at the stainless steel ball on the tabletop. It didn't seem to have a microphone. It didn't even look on, however it might be able to be on. Paul, Bob said gently, causing Paul to break eye contact with the device to meet his leveled gaze. From the beginning. University of Boston, Archaeology Department, Jim said in a calmer tone than before. Are are you sure that's, that's on? Paul asked, pointing at the device. The two looked taken aback, their eyes dropping to the silver ball on the table. Of course it's on, Bob answered. It's always on, Jim said. Okay, nodded Paul. Okay, just making sure. Uh, he swallowed audibly and put his mouth into the palm of his hand. June 9th, last year, Bob coerced the conversation to that day a little over a year prior. 
Paul took a deep breath, remembering the faces of his friends from the archaeology department in Boston. It wasn't like USC because it was always cold and snowy in his memories up there in Massachusetts. That was the safe place, safe at the time. Nothing happened in Boston that threatened the lives of those students, and whatever inevitably did was not of this world. I've always had a sort of sixth sense, you know, Paul said. Jim cocked his head sideways. You know, like, I can tell when people don't feel well or if they're angry, especially if they're angry. But sometimes I can foresee, not the future exactly, but I can know something that I shouldn't be able to know will be a certain way or not. Explain, Bob said. My sister used to drive me to school in the morning, and I never wore my seatbelt, not in three years of driving with her. About a week before she and I were in a major car accident that totaled her Toyota Prius, I got the sense that I should start wearing my seatbelt. Maybe I saw a violent car commercial on TV or something. Maybe I just randomly thought it would be a good idea. I don't know, but somehow I knew. There have been dozens of things that have happened like that in my life. Okay, why does that matter? Jim asked. It's why I, I think they let me go. Go back to the beginning, Bob said, growing impatient. Right, the beginning, Paul scratched his face. Uh, so this girl... Both Bob and Jim rolled their eyes and crossed their arms as they let out a groan. Jesus, kid, Jim scoffed. Paul shook his head. You guys wanted to know everything from the beginning, right? Yeah, get on with it. We got a five-hour flight back to D.C. after we're done with you. Okay, well, Paul flared his eyebrows. It starts with this girl. 2. While Paul's girlfriend Kendra was finishing another sitcom rerun on her tablet with her headphones in, Paul continued putting together his dissertation at his computer in the computer lab of the archaeology department. Why does the distinct sound of clacking heels cause heads to turn with expectation? Paul, like the other three men who had been drooling over their computers, looked up at the sound of the heels as a young woman of about 25 years of age with brown hair wearing a loud orange dress rounded the corner and entered Professor Williamson's office. Ten minutes later, they watched her leave and listened to her walk back through the building. Professor Williamson exited his office with a conflicted look upon his face. He had thick glasses that sat on the tip of his nose as he looked at the students over them. He usually dressed nicely, but it was a Sunday so he was wearing a light green short-sleeved button-up shirt and khaki shorts and sandals. He seemed to be considering something serious but didn't know how to propose what was on his mind. Have you heard the news? he asked finally. Garrett Noble looked up at Professor Williamson over his laptop and slowly took out a wireless earbud. Paul shook his head as his girlfriend looked between everyone without pausing her device. Look up! He withdrew his phone and held it up at a distance the way older people do to look through their glasses at the screen. He took a moment to scroll through news sites. Iraq Discovery, Mosul Dam. They discovered the ruins of a temple from the Mitanni Empire. That's Bronze Age. That's you, Noble, Walker, and Andrea whenever you guys see her on Monday. She said she'd be here on Sunday, but I won't, so you guys will have to let her know. Anyway, Professor Williamson pocketed his phone and continued. That woman was Miss Katia Brunswick, an emissary from the University of Tübingen's Institute for Near Eastern Studies. We've been invited to bring a team to conduct exclusive research on the interior of the building. Emissary? Garrett looked taken aback. Why wouldn't they just email you? Professor Williamson shrugged. She said she was visiting family in Boston and thought she'd swing by to see our department. You do know that it's impossible to fly to, in, or around Al Jazeera as an average American without serious risk of being kidnapped, right? Paul asked. We'll be chartered privately to the Mosul International Airport and accompanied by several large security details as we travel up the Tigris. This is a big deal. They want American eyes on the structure. Sounds fun, but dangerous, Garrett said. 
I'll be doing a considerable amount of research to make sure everyone feels comfortable, but check your inbox tomorrow. You should receive updates from me on the subject. Be sure to start freeing up your weekends for the next month. 3. Two weeks later, Paul and the rest of his class disembarked a small private plane from Baghdad that was big enough to carry their crew of 15 and a crew of hired security officers. Three helicopters full of U.S. Navy personnel descended on the airport as military trucks surrounded the landing strips. It had been classified as a large military event and only involved parties knew anything more than that. The 12 students and three student teachers were packed into five jeeps and covered with desert digital camo bulletproof vests with matching helmets. A convoy of military vehicles covered their front and flank as they traveled up the Tigris to the Mosul Dam. The class ate sandwiches that had been pre-packed for them as they crossed the dam. On the other side, they turned off onto a bumpy gravel road that led through the dusty no-color hills of northern Iraq. Upon entering the Duhok province, they followed a path that led directly to the shore of the river. A three-mile-large compound had been erected around the site to prevent a sudden attack on the location. From the pictures Paul had seen online, there were a few simple stone burial areas for them to examine. Upon arriving in person and witnessing the awe and spectacle of the massive temple arches, courtyards, and cloisters, a considerable amount of the temple that had been excavated was intentionally left out of the news to prevent mass tourism from the hardcore travelers who wouldn't let something like a level 4 travel advisory stop them from flocking to the temple for those oh-so-important likes and follows on Instagram. It would press the already desperate Iraqi desperados to begin kidnapping travelers on their way to the temple en masse. What they had uncovered so far was a gargantuan sanctuary that spanned the length of a football field. It was like the Joel Olstein Cathedral of the Bronze Age. Beyond that, they had discovered an ancient Assyrian-style military compound, a sort of on-base housing facility, and a huge tract that looked like an underground runway. Even in hostile territory, Paul had never felt more excited to begin walking through the halls of the great structure standing before them. Unfortunately, Paul and his classmates wouldn't get to begin investigating until the following morning. They were forced to remain in a large tent that had been set up with additional bunks for each of them. In the meantime, they played cards and waited excitedly through the night. If anyone slept, it was very little. Even Stephen Miller spent most of the night playing Angry Birds while drinking a beer as he waited for sleep to arrive. He usually slept through much of the school trips like these. None of them had experienced anything like this before. Natalie Jonas and Paul did Sudoku puzzles while Professor Williamson and Garrett Noble played checkers followed by chess. Charles Reed, a tall, soft-spoken man with thinning red hair, spent the evening learning Arabic on Duolingo. Many of the other students spent the evening working on their homework from back home or chatting amongst one another. James Poling was Skyping with a group of five others online long into the morning as he studied for his other classes. By four in the morning, everyone was asleep. 4. Katia Brunswick, the emissary and their host for the trip, entered the Boston University archaeology tent at 7 in the morning to let them know that they could enter the temple in an hour. Everyone groggily got up as Professor Williamson started making his famous chicory coffee, of which no one would partake. Paul was able to get a regular cup of Americano coffee from one of the Navy tents. It tasted like ass, like everything else, but it spurred him to take a dump in one of the orange porta potties that had been positioned along the river on the far corner of the camp. Ready to go, the students donned their bulletproof vests and helmets before filing out of the tent to meet at the temple entrance. Morning clouds traced hurriedly across the morning sky as the sun began warming the desert terrain around them. They went through a quick military rundown, saying that the camel spiders won't mess with you so long as you don't mess with them, the safe places to step had been marked, and that anyone messing around or engaged in horseplay would be removed from the temple immediately. After that, the curator for this project, a serious man with dark eyes who needed Katia to translate, explained that most of the artifacts had been recovered and sent to Germany for translating. 
However, if they were to stumble upon something or uncover an undiscovered room within the temple, they should report it immediately for investigation. As the temple was so old and no restoration efforts had yet taken place, the students were asked to watch their step and tread with caution. The curator, accompanied by Katia Brunswick, started the initial tour into the structure. Their armed guards stayed close to their side as they descended into the large, perfectly cut stonework. It was odd. All the pictures online had shown a cobblestone mismatched passage when the facility they were scouring looked almost like something from the future that had been buried for a millennia. Everyone continued into the building, but Paul's bladder suddenly pressed uncomfortably. He thought about asking the curator if it would be okay if he went to the restroom when he reminded himself that he was a college student. He didn't need to ask permission to do the most basic of tasks like going to the restroom. He jogged up the steps, leaving the guard behind. He suddenly felt eerily vulnerable. Fear struck a terrifying chord in his chest as he exited the ancient building that he and his classmates had just entered. When they descended with the curator into the structure, everything topside had been covered in canvas borders and fences. There were military personnel everywhere. Now it was as though Paul had just discovered the structure himself. There were no signs of any tent, no porta potties, and no military vehicles or guards anywhere. There weren't even footprints save for his and his classmates. His need to urinate dominated his thoughts until he could get the task done. Upon finishing and zipping up his pants at the edge of the deserted Tigris River, Paul tried to figure out how the entire squadron of Navy vehicles could have vanished without so much as a sound. He took off his Red Sox hat and scratched his neck with the bill of it. Paul tried to push down the rapidly growing worry he felt about the whole situation before he turned around and descended back into the structure. He needed to warn everyone that the military had abandoned them. 5. Okay, said Jim as he pressed his thumb and index finger to the bridge of his nose. Bob had taken off his blazer and rolled up his sleeves as he rested a dwindling cigarette in his hand on one knee. So here's what happened. You and your little crew went to Iraq against the travel ban and got kidnapped by ISIS. Half or more of the group got executed, they let you go, and you went into hiding with the survivor's guilt. That's your story, right? I wish, Paul said. That sounds a hell of a lot better than what really happened, to be honest. Really? Bob furrowed his bushy white eyebrows at Paul. We can go with your story if you want to make things easier. I really don't care. It would be a lot easier on me, Paul crossed his arms. No, tell us what you think happened, Jim said. I don't think anything. At least, I try not to, Paul sighed. I've spent many of my days over the last year trying not to think about the next part of this event. I like to think I can remember it if I so choose, but a lot happened once I got to the bottom of that structure. 6. Paul found his classmates after descending a number of scaffolding shafts. They were halfway across the sanctuary as he jogged up the flat incline to meet them. Everything's gone, he yelled. His colleagues and peers turned around to see what he was on about. The Navy and our security detail, he panted, pressing his knees as he drew deep, desperate breaths. They're all gone. What are you talking about? Professor Williamson glared at him. While everyone was looking at Paul, he met the suddenly fearful eyes of Katya Brunswick. Paul watched her take two steps back before disappearing entirely. His jaw dropped. It was like a magic trick because there was still a little smoke in the air from where she'd vanished. Everyone gaped at the place where he was looking. Where did Dr. Brunswick go? Garrett asked. She vanished! Paul spread his hands and grabbed his hair in disbelief. I saw her! What's going on with everyone? Professor Williamson gaped at the students. Horror and panic began to spread through them. The group fear climaxed when the scaffolding stairs collapsed as huge panels began to descend from the walls and over the entrances. Paul and the rest of the students ran to the fallen stairs where they had entered, but everything was crushed by the massive stone panels that had sealed them in a perfect rectangle. Light was still able to filter through the large slats in the ceiling, but they were still in near darkness. 
What are we going to do? Charles Reed asked. Almost as if in response to the question, the panel on the opposite side of the room lifted to reveal a single dark passageway. There's no way I'm going in there. Yurimoto, one of the student teachers, shook her head. Damn it. Professor Williamson chewed the inside of his cheek nervously as he surveyed the panel covering the exit. The wall was too large by any stretch to be lifted with ease, even if they all tried to lift it at once. The panels were too tall and too slick to be scaled. Their only choices were to stay or continue deeper into the structure. I've got no signal, Stephanie Clark held up her smartphone. Several other people were trying the same with similar results. Didn't have much of a signal topside, James Poling said. Did anyone bring a radio or one of the walkie-talkies the military guys had? Professor Williamson asked. The military is completely gone, Paul said. This is obviously some kind of misunderstanding, Professor Williamson said. Oh God, oh God, Katie Burns shakily clasped her hands over her mouth and face. We're going to become hostages. The whole thing was a setup, James scowled and paced before the sealed exit. We had military clearance to come here, Professor Williamson snapped. The U.S. Embassy knows where we are. The paperwork is all over my desk. Somebody is going to be in serious trouble when all this is over. They tried to avoid going further into the darkness for about ten minutes before the group began to rationalize that perhaps there was an exit at the other end. They argued that if someone wanted to kidnap the students, all they would need to do is round them up. With no one coming to capture them, the logical explanation was that someone had triggered some kind of ancient security system, which caused the group to become trapped. It didn't take much for this to become the dominant theory. The fifteen classmates made their way across the field of the sanctuary toward the yawning black threshold on the opposite side of the hall. Several students were able to withdraw flashlights they had brought in case they needed to examine something within the darkness. They yielded before the opening, only to see that the path descended down a set of crumbling steps that didn't look safe. Everyone looked around to see if there was any alternative, but they could find nothing. They had no choice but to continue down the stairs. Professor Williamson took the lead with his electric lantern held high. It gave the slick stone walls of the passage a fluorescent gleam that didn't extend very far. The path flattened and the professor's boot kicked the unmistakable ribcage of a skeleton. Stephanie dropped to the bottom stair and raised her flashlight, only to expose hundreds of piled skeletal corpses leading down the corridor. Yurimoto covered her mouth and turned around into James. What on earth? Professor Williamson put the back of his hand over his mouth as he scanned the hundreds of smiling skulls amidst the mismatch of bodies. They aren't fresh, so there's really nothing to worry about, Charles said, pointing at the skull with the eyes shrouded in cobwebs. Not encouraging, James whispered, patting Yuri's shoulder. Wish we had time to examine everything, Stephanie Clark said. Everyone heard the unmistakable click of a gun. When they looked over, Natalie Jonas was carrying a forty-four pistol in one hand. One of the Navy guys gave me one of these in case something happened. I'm not the best shot. Anyone else feel like leading? Give it to me, Professor Williamson held out his hand. Natalie made sure the safety was on before resting the gun in his grasp. He held it awkwardly. Jeez, it's been twenty-two years since I fired a gun. Let's hope you don't have to today, James said. Yeah, let's hope, said Professor Williamson. I'm probably as good a shot as Natalie. The group proceeded to the threshold and peered down the steps leading deeper into the structure. Several support structures had collapsed, making the passage cave in different places. It certainly didn't give anyone confidence in the decision to delve deeper. They dropped down the stairs and crouched under the dipping ceilings as roots and rocks protruded into the passage. They entered a wide stairwell that looked far more stable as the color of the stone changed to a purple-blue hue. The only sound was their steadily moving shoes on the stairs until they reached the bottom floor of the building. From here they exited the shaft of the stairs to a grand walkway that traveled between vast square columns. Upon the columns were some of the weirdest images carved into the stone. 
the first column on their left displayed a human figure on their knees, staring at the viewer with a look of horror upon their face. Behind them, huge octopus tentacles surrounded the crown of the individual's skull. The image on the column on their left displayed only the head of the victim, except it was painted red. There was a kind of pink outline highlighting the upper part of the head, signifying the brain. Everyone took time to observe the images upon these strange obelisks. They obviously revealed some procedure for human sacrifice. What do sea creatures have to do with human sacrifice? Stephanie Clark asked as she surveyed the weird octopus arms around the picture of the figure. Maybe they use squidding for something, Natalie said. It's not an octopus. There aren't enough appendages. The eyes look too centered for it to be a squid, and the head isn't bulbous enough to be an octopus, Charles added. The group continued through the underground passage until they came to a large center square between the towering columns of the hall. There were a number of wooden carts and tattered rolls of carpet that lined the walkway. Let's take a quick rest, Professor Williamson sighed and relaxed against a fallen column. The group filed into the center square and there they spent a few minutes trying to figure out what to do next. 7. I'm just as fascinated by the idea of traversing the remnants of an ancient civilization as the next guy, said Stephen Miller, but we didn't pack for a long journey. The people who brought water are nearly out. Professor Williamson shook his head. I didn't mean for this to happen. I don't understand how it could. Do you hear that? Natalie asked. Everyone looked around. Each person slowly began to hear the sound of a pick scraping across guitar strings. They looked at one another, faces filled with worry. The sound grew louder, but it wasn't in their ears. It was in their minds. Several people began to massage their temples. A girl named Rachel Dayton curled into a ball and began rocking back and forth as she clutched her ears. It wouldn't have done any good to stop the sound, but it didn't seem to matter. Paul squinted, pinching the bridge of his nose. It was such an abrasive sound, like fingernails on a chalkboard. From out of the darkness behind Stephen Miller, a purple creature with a mottled head emerged. The lower part of its face oozed with descending tentacles of varying sizes that flared before grappling Stephen's cranium. An additional large two tentacles slithered around his throat to prevent him from moving. Fear and terror sent the students running in all directions. Paul gaped in horror as Stephen's scream dissolved. Two of the monster's larger tentacles sank through his cranium and began pumping the gray innards from his skull. Stephen's eyes became white as his mouth and gaunt cheeks stretched to a horrified howl. Professor Williamson aimed the pistol at the creature before he realized that the object in his hand was now a banana. The banana slipped from his trembling fingers and fell to the floor. Panic filled the professor's eyes. He dashed around the fallen pillar only to run into a second of the bizarre creatures. The tentacled creature turned the professor round and pulled him into its chest. He jerked and screamed in the monster's grasp as tentacles gripped his neck in a chokehold. The bigger tentacles plunged into the professor's skull as his expressionless face gaped in awe, his body writhing in the clutches of his captor. Paul was too terrified to move. He couldn't get that awful picking sound out of his brain, otherwise he might have realized that he was moaning like a dog at the sight of his friends and colleagues being murdered and consumed before his eyes. At least six of the creatures swam out of the darkness and descended on Paul's classmates. Yurimoto was being led away from the massacre by one of the monstrous creatures before she was yanked away by a taller, more aggressive of the tentacled fiends. She put up a hand that was pulled tight to her face as her captor's tentacles sank through her short black hair into her skull. Her free hand swung wildly as her eyes rolled into the back of her head. The swinging hand dropped before her body went lax in the monstrosity's grasp. The tentacled figure that had tried to take Yuri grabbed Paul's wrist and flared its tentacles at him before leading Paul away from the rest of the screaming group. A warm, numbing sensation made him realize that he was walking with the creature willingly, complacent in whatever obviously nefarious schemes awaited. Paul heard the distant tonal inflection of Garrett Noble screaming for mercy before the scream was cut short. 
That was the last Paul heard of the 12 other people who had disappeared on that trip. The last two Paul saw were Charles Reed and Stephanie Clark. They were being led through the nightmarishly dark corridors of the slick-walled facility. At last, they entered a room that was being lit by a radiating, toxic green pool in the center of an altar platform. Though each of the three students felt insurmountable fear, they continued taking step after step with the goading effort of the mental constrictions the monstrosities had placed upon them. The three students walked up to the altar and climbed the steps to the large radiating pool on the upper floor. Stephanie filed across the opposite side of the pool. Charles stood between them and stared down at the pool of green. All three of them were facing the rich vat of green liquid that was the rich viscosity of blood. From the center of the pool, a massive wrinkled green-blue ball appeared. Paul, Stephanie, and Charles's jaws dropped when they realized that they were staring at a brain that was roughly the size of an elephant. A moment later, a full count of eight of the creatures entered the room and surrounded the altar. A thrumming drone echoed between their ears as the three students stood helpless before their fate. The large brain sank back into the substance before ten swimming black tentacled shapes surfaced. The creature that had initially brought Paul to this room mounted the steps and crouched to pluck one of the black swimmers from the pool. The tentacled monster stood before Charles. Everyone from the group of monsters chanted a long passage in unison. The moment they finished, the creature holding the swimmer lifted it to Charles's ear. It willingly slipped inside as Charles's jaw dropped. The group gave a quick bow before the tall creature before Paul crouched again and took hold of two more swimmers. He moved to Stephanie, and the same process that was done to Charles was done to her. The creature finally stood over Paul. Paul's mouth lowered as he felt the tickling of the wormy tentacle tadpole with the sharp razor teeth angle its way into Paul's ear canal. His eyes rolled into the back of his head as a splitting headache gripped him. A tight compression seemed to occupy his mind. His head felt heavier, duller, thicker. When his eyes rolled back down dizzily, he, Stephanie, and Charles were stumbling down the dusty Iraqi dirt road through the deadpan hills. Paul was only able to remember fractured details of what happened beneath and above the surface following the disappearance of the military much later. What he did remember from the topside was just as bizarre and disturbing as what happened below. First of all, Katya appeared in the road ahead of them, but she didn't look the way she looked in the archaeology office or when she started the tour into the structure. She looked 15 years younger and wore a pair of crimson leather pants, boots, and a pair of black overalls over a pink shirt that cut off above her belly button. He still couldn't be sure if her part in this memory was a dream or not because of her strange behavior. She examined all three of them, eventually isolating Charles and Stephanie away from Paul. Katya seemed to have an assortment of strange magical powers that she tested on each of them. Paul likened it to being on the verge of blackout drunk while your friends are doing random activities. At one point, Katya was spinning a large fireball in front of them, and at another, she was teleporting them around the desert. It was during this odd teleportation experience that he lost Stephanie and Charles for good. Short of the snippets of their faces from the dream state he was in, he couldn't fully recall the precise last time he saw them. Upon suddenly being fully conscious, Paul found himself in front of the Anasad airbase, which meant nothing to him until about two weeks after he returned to America. He didn't know what he told the officials at the airbase, but video-recorded evidence showed a clear and level-headed young man explaining that he and two other students were traveling. They were attacked and kidnapped, he lost his passport, and lost track of the other two from his group. The story was a complete fabrication, and Paul had no memory of saying anything of the sort to any of the officials. He did remember looking at the faces of the officials during questioning, but all that he heard was a dull tinnitus hum. Upon receiving background information about Paul from America and uncovering the dead body of one of his companions, the officials at the airbase decided to send him home. By the time the officials realized that the situation was far grander than they had first anticipated, Paul Walker had disappeared from the face of the planet.
8. I would have stuck with the terrorist lie if it was me, Jim said. He's telling the truth, Bob said, considering the stainless steel ball on the table. I know he is, Jim sighed. Question is, what are we supposed to do about it? Wait, what happened to me actually happened? Paul gaped at the two of them. Bob and Jim exchanged an expressionless look. Bob withdrew his smartphone. It was a weird, thin and slick device that wasn't like any of the popular smartphones on the market. He flicked through it and eventually turned the phone to show Paul. Are these the small black creatures that you saw? The picture showed a black tentacled tadpole on its side with its razor-sharp teeth open. It was sitting on a lab table somewhere. Paul nodded. I can't believe they exist. We found one of them, Jim said, his arms still crossed. It was about two feet from the exploded skull of one of your friends. It had eaten their brain. That's terrifying, Paul swallowed. Yeah, it is, Jim said, watching Paul carefully. Question is, if that's what happened to them and they went through the same procedure as you, why are you still walking around? And why did they let you go? I don't know, maybe it ate my brain too, Paul said in a low tone. Jim looked at Paul from both sides of his face. You seem to be functioning like a perfectly fine human being. I don't know why they let me go, Paul shook his head. I ask myself that question every minute of the day. Maybe it died in there, Bob suggested. Always a possibility. You know we can't let you leave, right? Jim asked. I don't know what you plan to do with me, said Paul. People are going to wonder where Arthur Cunningham went. I think it'd be more important for you to be kept under lock and key, Jim said. It usually takes an illithid nine or ten years to begin showing signs of transformation. Until then, the host just lives its life. Wait, what? Paul asked. You're basically dead, said Bob. That thing's going to eat you from the inside out. Right now, you're just a warm body to grow into. But I'm functioning just fine, Paul said. Are you? Jim asked. When was the last time you drove a car? How'd that work out for you? You chose a city where you wouldn't need to drive, opposite seasonally to where you used to live in a preferred warm environment. And you're studying a basic course at USC that you've already taken before, Bob said. I've taken it. Arthur hasn't, Paul argued. Bob shrugged. The parasite in your brain is using the knowledge you already have to wait out the clock before it finishes with you. It's in the parasite's best interest to have the host believe it still has a purpose. Paul shook his head. I don't believe any of that. He got up from the table and as did Bob and Jim. Paul's nose suddenly felt runny. Grab him, Bob ordered as Jim rounded the table. Paul tried to scream, but what emerged were two massive tentacles from his throat and two burst from his nose. Jim tried to grab Paul, but was thrown backward telekinetically against the wall of Arthur's flat. Bob withdrew a pistol, but Paul threw both hands at him. Bob was launched across the room into the wall where his head slammed into the windowsill. Jim tried to recover, but the impact had knocked the wind from his stomach. Approaching Jim, an eager hunger filled his stomach. It was the appetite a mosquito gets when it senses the carbon dioxide exhalation of a nearby blood host. Jim was a potential meal as well. Not his body, but his mind and thoughts. They were the slipstream that provided Jim's existence, and it was a delicious treat to enjoy emotions of memory, positive and negative, through taste. But the only way to consume that taste was to consume the source. Jim felt Paul grab him around the middle with superhuman strength. Paul placed Jim's skull within range of his purple tentacles before the larger ones placed him in a chokehold. The two tentacles from his nose snaked onto Jim's temples. They released a toxic flesh and bone-eating acid that dissolved the cranium. The tentacles sank into the soft and fluffy brain within. It was like cotton candy, so sweet and rich like butter and honey syrup being sucked through the ducts in his tentacles. As he fed, the tentacles pumped Jim's fluffy gray brain matter. Jim's eyes rolled into the back of his head as the skin of his face pulled tight and gaunt with the sudden lack of color. Paul ate. A pure hunger coursed through his stomach that prevented him from leaving the host. 
After a few minutes, the satisfaction he had received previously was suddenly no more. It was like a drug he had run out of as he pulled the tentacles free of Jim's weight. Bob was just coming to as Paul descended on him. In ten minutes, the two agents who had been sent to find him were no more, and Paul was set for another month. But the sweetness of that delicious gray matter was something that couldn't be ignored. He needed more. He was able to hear voices in the back of his mind. They were the voices of his new companions. They were back, back in the temple structure, beckoning for him to return. They liked deep, dark, and cold places. Paul did too. He would rejoin his elder brothers and sisters soon, and with him he would bring precious gray matter, a gift to his new superiors. All those memories, the parts of the brain that makes you, you, that was the most delicious part. Having no need of the silly facade he had been living, Paul left the house and roamed the darkened streets of Los Angeles. There would be additional disappearances that night. Of that, Paul could promise. That was pretty creepy. It's also a bit of backstory for one of my up-and-coming novels. I'd learned a lot about the Illithid, the fantastical Dungeons and Dragons monsters that enjoy sucking out the brains of their victims, but it wasn't until after I finished writing the book that I learned just how disturbing these creatures really are. Do a little research and drop me a line on Twitter about what you think of them. Let me know what I got right and wrong. I can't think of a more unsettling race of beings to call an enemy, so please let me know if you have any epic wins or defeats at the hands of the classic Mind Flayer in your own adventures. I've got audiobooks and more podcast episodes in the works, but, you know, life happens. I'm going to shoot for an episode per month, and maybe I can stick to a schedule of that, assuming things go well. Anyway, until next time, I'm Ben, and this is the Apocalypse Theater Podcast. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was produced, directed, written, and edited by Benjamin Allen. If you'd like to support us, throw us a subscribe, good review, like, or check out our donation page on the contacts page of our website. You can also buy my books and or audiobooks in the future from ekpublishingmedia.com. Apocalypse Theater is an EK Publishing Media production, 2019.